Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is uh, Frank Bunger, the CEO and founder of Orion Span. We're going to be talking about the uh, Aurora Space Station and uh, what's going on with their company. So, Frank, how are you doing? Hey, thanks. Uh, good. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be uh, really interesting. You're uh, an unusual guest with an unusual uh, premise here. So, so tell listeners, uh, what do you do? Sure thing. Yeah, so the concept behind Aurora Station came from the notion of uh, wanting to make serious steps towards the long-term colonization of space. If you look back into the 60s and 70s, at that time, it, it kind of seemed like we were on the cusp of settling on uh, the moon and settling on Mars. Uh, but at that time, what, what changed was that the, the political winds changed and, and therefore, by extension, uh, budgetary winds changed for uh, space agencies. So those things largely took a hiatus while we instead learned how to live in orbit on the board of the International Space Station. Um, so now fast forward to uh, about 10 years ago, and uh, you start to see uh, players like SpaceX, and I think you have to credit them for groundbreaking this year, starting to make um, serious inroads into being a commercially viable, profitable uh, space enterprise, you know, selling rocket launches, which had previously been un- unheard of. Uh, and now I think at, at this point now, fast forward another 10 years later to, to today, we're at a point where there is so much activity uh, beginning to uh, take root in space that um, I saw this was the moment to uh, build a platform upon which people could first visit and then in the long run uh, start to consider how we might actually colonize space, whether it's orbit or the moon or Mars. Uh, you know, we, we want, my goal here is to get, uh, by the end of my lifetime, to get people living in space on a full-time basis. So what, what are some of the, uh, well, let's talk about your particular initiative. So what's your goal to help foster, uh, you know, living in space and getting into space? Yeah, sure. So the first step here is, is Aurora Station, which is a luxury space hotel. So obviously, but just like here on the ground, and if you want to move somewhere, say you want to move to uh, Texas or you want to move to Seattle, chances are you want to visit there before you uh, dig in and try to move there. The same concept in, in space. Uh, it's uh, a little bit more complex due to the, the nature of, of biology in space. Um, so the, the premise of having a luxury space hotel is that we can start to have people go up there more regularly, once a month by 2022, and wow. uh, start to make this a little bit more comfortable and routine for people. So by, say, 2023, 2024, We've got a batch of 100 to 200 people who have gone up there and returned. And uh, aside from having had a, a life-changing experience, um, they have also come back and have become champions that, yes, this is possible and it's not, uh, it's, it's not that uncomfortable. Uh, and the, the next step in that, that process is going to be, uh, and this is really upon the entire space industry, not, not solely upon us, is for costs to get to orbit to fall. Uh, significantly over the next uh, 10 to 15 years. So if you did the space hotel today, what would be the approximate cost to do it? Uh, so we're we're going to be able to build uh, a work station for the tens of millions instead of hundreds of millions that our, our competitors and others are advertising. 
And the reason we're able to do that is because we've, we've innovated in a way that simplifies space station operations. So there's a lot, uh, there's a lot less uh, just kind of stuff in general. Uh, for example, one of, the, uh, one of the key innovations is, so we're not using, uh, the International Space Station uses these wonderful radiators for uh, heat dispersal, but uh, they have a lot of moving parts. So by body mounting them and innovating in some ways that we can have them body mounted and still have the same efficiency or better efficiency, uh, we've eliminated uh, significant uh, risks of having moving parts on the outside of Aurora Station. So that's, that's one example. There's many more such examples. And there's, you know, there's also some simple line item ones like, okay, well, you know, um, International Space Station has this um, uh, waste management system that reclaims moisture from um, from your pee. And I don't know about you, but if I'm having a luxury experience, I don't really want to be drinking my own pee. So uh, that's, that's an easy one to cross off, and it also then therefore reduces our cost. <laughs> well, uh, um, to give people context, the International Space Station, it wasn't built yesterday. So how old is that technology compared to something you'd build now? And maybe that's like a, a big source of efficiency money-wise. Yeah, that, that's definitely definitely true. So the uh, the first modules for the ISS went up in the late 90s, and assembly started around that time, too. It obviously took a long time, as we all know. Uh, the, and definitely the advances in technology, if you think back in the late 90s, we were using uh, these, these, you know, a laptop at that time was an enormous piece of junk, and uh, there's no such thing as a touchscreen or iPad yet, or a smart smartphone or any of these things. So, I definitely, the commoditization of hardware and the, the dropping prices on computing power uh, and uh, and improved performance help a lot because it simplifies uh, a lot of systems as well. The same way that we see a revolution in satellites from you know, big, um, heavy satellites that are 100 kilograms or more um, that required a lot of electronics to uh, CubeSats and NanoSats that have the same computing power or better and pack it into something much smaller. Again, what's your guess on the pricing? I know, you know, I'm not asking you to be held to it or anything, but what's the ballpark you think the pricing will be for, you know, a single person to go and stay in the luxury space hotel? Yeah, sure. So uh, we're, we're pricing our... Um, we're pricing our trips starting at 9.5 million, and uh, it, I'm sure it sounds expensive. It is an exclusive experience, there's no doubt. But uh, if you look hmm. back historically, tourists that went into the International Space Station paid between 20 and 50 million, uh, which is so coming in a lot better price point. And uh, even one of our competitors has somehow gone the wrong direction on that and is now starting their prices at 55 million. Uh, so it, you know, this, that's again evidence of the same problem that government has, which is cost structure is is not is not designed in a way that you can have a lower price. When you try to build huge engineering projects, of course it's going to cost you a lot of money. Of course you're going to have to charge your customers more. Uh, so our approach yeah. is the reverse, is, is simplify, uh, simplify operations as much as possible and let's cast a wider net and bring more people up there. Okay, that makes sense. So what's the, uh, what's the summation of the experience? Like is this hotel literally in orbit? outside of our atmosphere or where is it and what's the experience like like how long do you go what do you do yeah sure uh, it, it definitely is in orbit it's going to be at about 200 miles above the earth's surface uh, the, by comparison the international space space station is 250 miles up so at 200 miles up we're a little bit closer we wanted to put guests a little bit lower because the views um, you get a little bit more detail in, in what you can see and yet it's high enough that we don't need to worry about uh, having to reboost it all the time uh, so the and the goal here to answer your question is is really to give guests a life-changing experience. 
So we're not uh, selling a room in a hotel. We're selling a uh, astronaut experience, unlike anything that you can have anywhere else. Uh, if you look at uh, what some of the suborbital flight providers are doing, like um, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, uh, they've caught on similar that that that's what people want. They want an experience. They don't want to, you know, they don't want a flight or we just sit there and stare out the window. Um, right. And uh, you know what we're doing is extending that kind of idea into um, a 12 day stay. So part of that will be uh, part of those days that they'll spend aboard. They'll be doing some training as part of a certification process. Uh, we also have a uh, virtual reality experience that we're calling the holodeck because uh, we want to make sure people are always always having a good time and they can simulate anything in virtual reality. Uh, and we also expect that um, guests will want to participate in what it's like to be an astronaut. So they'll actually be conducting real scientific experiments. Uh, one of the common examples we use is growing food in space, something that's applicable um, anywhere in space, whether it's going to be on the moon or Mars or in, in uh, deep space or orbit. Uh, and lastly, we, we think that people are going to spend a lot of time probably um, calling everyone they know and live streaming um, some of the amazing <laughs> views and, and what they're doing. Cause it's, it's certainly, it's certainly going to be exciting. And, and you know, uh, I can imagine some people wanting to surprise their, their friends or relatives, like, hey, check this out. Look where I am. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Um, I, I guess there's no way to have any gravity up there, right? So it'll be a zero G experience the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good point. I, I didn't mention that. It, it's uh, zero gravity all, at all times. So that's also a, uh, kind of a boost from uh, the suborbital flights where you might experience a few minutes of uh, zero gravity. Here you'll be in zero gravity for 12 days. So it's, it's quite exciting. And, uh, you know, just the, the simple act of um, grabbing a pen or putting a pen down suddenly becomes really interesting when it you know, rotates on three axes in, in ways that you just had not really ever considered before because it's just a, it's not, not a problem that we have here on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did the zero-G flight, you know, when you do the parabolas and stuff like that, so I experienced zero-G for, you know, 20, 30 seconds at a time. And it's uh, yeah, how was that? It was awesome. It was amazing. Um, I don't know if it was because we were doing parabolas, but by the 20th one, I was, like, just about ready to throw up. Yeah, so I, think, uh, I think over, nick- but it was amazing. I think the nickname for that trip is uh, the Vomit Comet. So uh, <laughs> yeah, everyone did it, pretty it good. Is, uh, it just like I said, after a while, I was like, please no more. <laughs> yeah, we said, I could do that. Yeah, yeah. I talked to Peter Diamandis, and he said they tuned it. You know, like they used to do a lot more, and astronaut training did more. But they anyway, you know, it's a sweet spot yeah. there. Um, uh-huh. I was going to ask you, with I don't know this, it just seems like it, but when, you know, when astronauts have gone into space. They needed to be like the absolute fittest people, and they went through a whole battery of all kinds of tests and everything. Is that necessary for the people that want to go on this experience, or you know, is it you just need to be in decent health? Like, how much, how important is that? Yeah, I, I would liken the fitness requirements similar to that of um, taking a, a diving certification. So the same way, if you um, if you want to go dive the Barrier Reef and uh, get your uh, your PADI certification over there. You go through some tests, and it's it's going to be somewhat similar for us. So there's certainly it's it's a minimum you will have to be 18 because uh, the the equipment is not sized for children uh, for for you know basically smaller human beings. Um, right. And then there there's going to be some um, some things like the same things that might disqualify you from from diving, like um, extensive heart disease or hypertension. Uh, but it's the requirement is is not going to be anywhere near as strict as what uh, NASA has imposed because uh, they they were obviously operating from 
the utmost of safety. And, and secondly, also, they wanted to make sure that these people were at all times physically and mentally capable of um, commanding the, the spacecraft, right, which is not the case here. These are guests. Um, they're not expected to to um, to pilot the, the spacecraft. So uh, our astronauts that are our staff, essentially, will have such rigorous requirements. But for guests, it'll be uh, a lot more uh, flexible. Well, what, what's the consequence of, uh, I mean, how hard is it on your body to be launched into space and to be weightless for 12 days? I mean, is it, is it really like a serious toll on your body or is it not too bad? What are the effects? Yeah, it, it seems to depend on the person, ultimately. Uh, they're, certainly the launch up the, uh, at maximum, going up into orbit, you reach a maximum of about 3 Gs, uh, which is, is, it can be uncomfortable for people. And that's, I think that's one of the areas where you want to make sure that people don't have um, hypertension or heart disease because it makes even just breathing feel a little bit difficult for those mm. 20 to 30 seconds that that's uh, at 3 Gs. Um, and then once you're in orbit, uh, there are some folks that uh, report having uh, some nausea and similar uh, symptoms for a day or two. Uh, so it's, it's probably similar to, I think the, the, the most analogous experience is if you've ever been on a, um, say, a smaller boat for a couple of days where, you know, you get on board and the, that first day or two, you feel a little bit nauseous just because everything's moving. And then, you know, you, you kind of get used to it and it's over. Um, and then when you return to Earth, you know, you might, uh, or in the boat scenario, when you return to land uh, for a day or two, you might feel like things are still moving a little bit, even though they're not. So it, it's a, that's probably the most analogous um, example to compare what it's like uh, to experiences that we've, we've all had here on Earth. Hmm. I'm sure people would have 8 million questions like, how do you eat? How do you sleep? How do you go to the bathroom? Any insights? Mm -hmm. <laughs> into that kind of stuff, any difficulties, because yeah, I mean, you're in zero G. I mean, it's all a challenge, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, it, it isn't. It isn't. There's certainly, there's, space toilets are, um, have reached a pretty mature point. Uh, the <laughs> one aboard the ISS is a little more complicated than it needs to be. We've got, uh, we've got some, some nice innovation there to make it easier to use and more comfortable to use. Um, sleeping is, is actually not that hard. You just have to make sure that you're attached to something because you might go floating around. <laughs> And, uh, sure. you know, in terms of the, the accoutrements of the interior, um, we're also designing Aurora Station in a way that um, we want to kind of keep people spatially oriented. Because what's, um, what's interesting when you enter these types of experiences is that um, when you step into Aurora Station, is you know, really technically up and down doesn't really matter anymore, right? There is no real up and down the way there is on right. Earth or sideways. So we're designing the interior in a way that, uh, visually, uh, both through um, through the design as well through uh, lighting cues, that people still have a sense of up and down. So down will be you know towards Earth, and up will be towards the stars. Um, because those kinds of little things, it might sound trivial, but those are the little things that actually make uh, a big difference in making people feel more comfortable uh, and, and also less uh, less kind of disoriented or, or nauseous potentially. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, like again on the zero G flight, they said do not look out the window. You will not like what uh, yeah. you see. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah, I, I bet. I, I have a feeling people look out the window, they probably puke right away. <laughs> yeah, like when I before I did it, I looked at pictures of it online, and you see like the plane how it's angled up so steeply or down. You're like, oh shit! You know, <laughs> it, it yeah. frightens you just to see that. So yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Yep. Um, anything that you've uh, learned by 
you know, people going into space or living in space, are there any challenges that, you know, people wouldn't think about being in that environment? Yeah, luckily for, for the short, for a 12-day trip like ours, there's there, the long-term effects of zero gravity don't really um, have an impact. Uh, so we've, we've seen the astronauts that have been aboard the ISS for longer terms, like John Kelly and, and others, uh, Scott Kelly, sorry, uh, who has been in space more than a year, uh, you know, you start to see some, some issues for those types of folks. But for a 12-day trip, there's there's not really um, as, as many health risks. It's just overcoming that initial uh, period of, of a little bit of nausea for some people. So that that is actually kind of reassuring. So if you look at that time from, say, the last Apollo mission in the 70s to, uh, to today, the, that time has been spent designing, building the ISS and having people prolonged for, in space for prolonged periods, which had never been done before. So it gave us valuable insight. Uh, and the, the long-term goal here for us and, uh, and I think for the broader space industry is that anything, anyone who's going to be in orbit for an extended amount of time needs to have some amount of simulated gravity through a rotating structure. Uh, because absolute zero gravity for extended amounts of time is uh, it does take a toll on the body. So we, we want to make this uh, a possibility in the future that uh, in order for people to actually make it, uh, be able to live there. Are there any health benefits? I mean, you don't have gravity pulling down on your spine and other stuff. I mean, have, you, have people yeah. observed any benefits? I think it's it's unclear from what I've understood from all the, the health research. There's, there's certainly a lot of interesting things that happen um, around uh, both cancer growth as well as treatment. So I, I think that that's one of the areas where the ISS continues to provide a lot of value is um, through that research, because I, I do believe that there are um, areas in, in space in the medical field, and perhaps it's things like growing organs in space, because in zero gravity, you can grow them more perfectly than you can on Earth or something of that nature. There, uh, there are possibilities there that have not yet been explored. And I, I believe that we're, we're probably five or so years away from, from really discovering a uh, so-called killer app or something that can be done in space medically that, that can't be done in, on Earth in regular gravity. And when we figure that out, um, not only does man go up for these types of services, uh, you really start to, uh, aside from giving people an, an awesome life-changing experience, Maybe we can actually save people's lives uh, through medical procedures or, or um, some sort of, say, organ-grown in space or something of that nature. There's a lot of exciting things coming up there that um, that I think we're we're all looking forward to and we're looking forward to seeing some yeah. progress in. Um, what about the uh, I don't like this, I want to go home syndrome? I mean, if if people go for 12 days, what if they like freak out on day one? Are you gonna have are you gonna have it staggered where new people are coming every day and leaving every day in case someone like flips out, wants to go home, or yeah, the uh, the way it's structured is so there's there's going to be one spacecraft that brings all so it's a capacity of six people, two are our staff and four our guests. Um, so there's only going to be one spacecraft at a time attached, and so everybody goes up and down at the same time. There's no um, there's no staggering for starters. Uh, so if somebody gets up there and freaks out, uh, it, unless it's a medical emergency, then uh, you know we're going to have medical staff uh, on the ground to assist and uh, and try to get them in, into a better state. Uh, if it does become a medical emergency, then everybody has to leave together and people would be refunded and so forth. But uh, our, our goal would be to, uh, far in advance of launch, is to uh, screen people and, and make sure that they understand the, the psychology of it as well. So it's not just a, 
aside from medical screening, there um, we're also going to be doing a, um, kind of a, a a team screening, so to speak, of how do people interact with each other, and uh, if people have the right kind of mindset to to do something like this, because it, it's uh, it, you know it's, it's an adventure. It's like climbing Mount Everest. It's not for everyone. Yeah, well, that's true. It's definitely true. What about um, safety? Again, are you going to have a medical team in space in case something happens? And what if space debris, you know, smashes into one of the viewing windows and cracks it or something? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, tackling both of those questions, the there will always be a medical team on the ground uh, 24-7 to, to assist. Uh, so through both, you know, video as well as audio. Uh, and we also, our astronauts will also be, be trained in uh, at least a minimum of basics, so like a nurse level of um, medical assistance, uh, so they can at least provide some basic help there. Uh, if things do escalate into a, a medical emergency, then everybody uh, heads back to Earth immediately. Uh, so same kind of question on um, so micrometeorite impact. The good news about micrometeorite impacts is that we we uh, it's it's a well understood um, problem, and we will have the best in class micrometeorite shielding. So we don't really anticipate any problems. The, the the challenge is there are only for the ones that you can't detect, right? The really really small pieces, um, and those those impacts you can defend against. Um, the bigger items you you um, fire up the thrusters and move out of the way of far in advance. Uh, so worst case scenario, if something like you said were to happen and it was some sort of impact that that uh, you know something bad happened, that's why there's always the spacecraft attached, so people w- would be able to evacuate immediately and return to Earth safely. And how long does the trip take to get there and to get back? What's your estimate? It's well, it's actually very short. To once you're the, from the moment the engines on the rocket light to the moment you're at Aurora Station is is about uh, 45 minutes. Actually, a very short trip oh, wow. time wise. It's more the uh, you know, getting ready for it, the training, the preparation, um, uh, having some notion of what's going to happen and, and all that. that. That's really the, that's part of the astronaut experience we're selling. And that's, that's also the excitement of it. Uh, the return trip is also, in terms of time, is also not very long. It's uh, maybe two hours as you detach and wait for the right orbital window to return. So it, it, it actually, the, you know, the, the trips themselves are short. It's just more the preparation and the training that um, that have a longer tail and that are, are part of the excitement. Wow, that's amazing. So you think you're, you're I would bet you have a waiting list already. And when When is your first anticipated uh, flights going to be? Yeah, we, we sure do. Uh, so we're, we're anticipating having people up there in early 2022. Uh, and the exact time we'll, uh, we'll be creating some um, opportunities for people to go. It's going to depend on launch windows from launch providers. So uh, the exact days will be to be determined as we get closer to that time. But we're hoping January, February of 2022 will be the first launch. That's not long. That's amazing. Yeah, it's right. It's coming right up. How long is your <laughs> is your waiting list so far? Is it like years long, or is it not too bad? Yeah, at the moment, the uh, so last last figure I publicly released was uh, 22, and it's it's gone up since. Uh, I don't want to say much more there just yet, but. Uh, it's definitely been growing. So uh, at a rate of four per month, that uh, that puts us around the five to six month mark, and it's gone up since. So I uh, certainly wow. encourage people who are interested to, to get on early because, uh, yeah, it's definitely a lot of demand. Yeah, and um, just a couple quick questions about the orbits. Um, I know that they have different names for the different orbits, low Earth and this and that and the other, and geosynchronous. Can you talk a little bit about the different orbits available and the one you chose and why and what it's like in that orbit versus others. 
Sure, yeah. So there's the, the three kind of primary categories are low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, and uh, high Earth orbit or geosynchronous. Um, so the ISS is located in low Earth orbit, as which is also our plan. Uh, the higher orbits that you're referring to are really the domain of satellites, and they might be in those positions, like a geosynchronous orbit means that you're traveling at a speed that you move with the Earth's rotation. So essentially, that's like something for a communication satellite or um, uh, a monitoring satellite that stays in the same position over the Earth, relatively speaking. Um, so that, that would be the, the driver there for uh, for anything that has people on board, and not just that, but also just the, the ease of access. The lower you are, the easier it is to get to. Um, it, it requires less delta V to get to, so less energy to get to, uh, which means also cost less. It's also safer from a, a uh, radiation point of view. Uh, the more you are still within the Earth's magnetic field and, and deeply within it, like you are in low Earth orbit, the less you have to worry about um, radiation effects that you would have on a deep space mission or going to the moon or going to Mars. So that the mm. And lastly, you're going to have, uh, just from an experiential point of view, you're going to have a hell of a lot better views being close up than uh, being way out. Uh, you just won't see much at, from from way up. Um, the, the ranges are, are pretty big. Space is a big place. Well, well, interesting. How fast will you be going in low Earth orbit? And like, how fast does the Earth go, and how fast will you be going? Yeah, we'll be going 20,000 miles per hour to, to maintain that orbit. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> how fast does the Earth move? Uh, I don't know offhand, but it's, uh, I guess it depends on your, your relative location. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's certainly uh, slower than that. Wow. That's, that's pretty crazy. Huh. Yeah. You have and to, what, have to, what do you think people will see when they look down at Earth? And what will they see when they look out? Yeah, we're going to have um, a lot of windows on, on all sides of the spacecraft. So people can look down sideways and up. Uh, so looking down, uh, our orbit is, is such that we'll be going over uh, 80% of all of the world's population. So you know, at some point in the orbit, people are going to be able to fly over their hometowns. So we, we want to give them really uh, high-powered optics so they, they might even be able to see some landmarks from, from space, say a university oh, tower or something like that. Because uh, it, it, it is a it is pretty cool to to see that from above. Um, if you've ever seen pictures of like a hurricane from space, it's it's pretty darn cool. Uh, I mean, it's, it's scary on the ground, but the the view from space is pretty pretty impressive. And what about looking out to the sun or the moon or other structures? Mm-hmm. Out yeah, there? so you'll definitely see sunrises and sunsets. You'll see 16 sunrises and sunsets per day for Earth Day. Uh, so a lot of uh, a, a lot of day and night cycles that you'll see. And you'll see moon rises as well. Uh, and, and, of course, you're going to see the aurora borealis, which is where our name comes from. Uh, both the northern and the southern aurora, you'll have good views of um, on the sideways uh, angle. That's, uh, that's really amazing. Well, um, have you done uh, any flights, any suborbital or low-orbit low flights yourself? or? Uh... No, I personally have not. Uh, I would certainly love to, but uh, I, I hear their waiting lists are fairly long as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they are. Well, very good. Um, so, again, what's the best way for people to find out more and to, uh, you know, perhaps get on the waiting list? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, best thing is go to our, our website and, and browse around there. And if, if anybody has any questions, uh, certainly welcome to reach out to us at uh, uh, reservations at orionspan.com questions. And uh, you can also feel free to reach out to me personally. It's my email is my first and last name, frank.bunger at orionspan.com. I'd be happy to field questions directly as well.
Well, very good. Well, thanks. This is amazing. It's really cool that uh, you and other people are visionary about this stuff, and it's uh, it would be an amazing, amazing experience. So that's really cool. Yeah, it sure will. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.